It's Friday 12th of May and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing all about the latest debt ceiling saga in the US and potential market fallout. But now I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. We've been talking about the roundtables that we've been holding for clients in Hong Kong and Singapore this past week and some of the questions and themes that continue to come up out of those sessions. Obviously, the China outlook was a pretty consistent theme there. We had this strong Q1 data that grabbed the headlines last month. But in this past week, we've seen some disappointing trade data and some pretty ugly credit numbers. Is the China recovery already over? Well, the data over the past week or so certainly suggests that the best of the recovery is now behind us. We've been following some of the high frequency data very closely, in particular, the data on spending over the Labor Day holiday week at the start of this month. That actually suggests that domestic spending was pretty strong over the holiday period. The consequence of that, though, is that if you look at where spending in large retail and catering establishments now is in China, it's pretty much back to its its pre-COVID trend. So that suggests to us, at least, that most of this rebound from, from the lifting of zero COVID restrictions is now in the rearview mirror. Roll the clock forward, what does it mean? Well, I think as you get to the second half of the year, I don't think we're going to see the Chinese economy collapse. And yes, the credit data were were certainly softer than we had anticipated. But I don't think we're going to see a collapse in the Chinese economy. What we're going to see is a, a slowdown to a more normal pace of growth. On our estimates, the economy expanded by about 7% Q on Q in the first quarter of this year. That's on our China activity proxy measure. They're clearly, that's unsustainable. That reflects the rebound from the, the lifting of zero COVID restrictions. As we shift to the second half of this year, we're going to see a slowdown to a more normal rate of expansion in China of, say, 1% a quarter, something like that. And I think that's going to be the direction of travel over the coming months and quarters. What about further out? The cover story of The Economist magazine this week draws on analysis done in 2018 by Mark Williams and Julian Evans Pritchard from our China team which makes the case for its economy growing at just 2% by the end of this decade. At the time, that was pretty much heresy, wasn't it? I mean, the expectations were still mostly that the economy would continue growing in the high single digits as it had for previous decades. Can you walk us through Mark and Julian's analysis? Yeah, well, like you say, the, the report that Mark and Julian published five years ago set out this view that China's economy would ultimately slow to a growth rate of about 2% by the start of the 2030s. Obviously, a lot has changed in the intervening period. We've had a pandemic. We've had crackdowns on various sectors in China's economy. We've had a deterioration in the relationship between the US and China over that period too. But I think a lot of the analysis in that piece still stands up. That piece flagged many of the challenges that have become more prominent over the past couple of years the constraints on investment, the problems with this high savings, high investment model, problems in the property sector, pushback from trading partners, including the US, the demographic outlook, which is increasingly difficult. Now China's working age population and indeed population as a whole starting to shrink. And most importantly, the fact that policymaking in China is becoming more centralized. There's greater control from the center over the allocation of resource, both capital and labor within the economy. And China is at the point of its development where the market needs to do more work in terms of allocating resource. So that's the central issue. It's the fact that there's been this push by Xi to 
reassert the primacy of the party, reassert control over the economy. And that's exactly what China's economy doesn't need at this stage of development. Put that together with all these lingering structural issues, demographic challenges, we get to a 2% growth view. And as you say, that was heresy five years ago. It doesn't look quite so out there now. And moving away from China, but going back to these Asia meetings with clients, a lot of questions about inflation, not so much to do with what's happening in Asia per se, but what's been happening in Western economies. We've had new inflation data from the US in the past few days, but also from Norway, for example, and the message hasn't been that encouraging. How big is the risk that core inflation remains high? And does that mean that banks like the Fed and the Bank of England are going to have to do more, even though we're now thinking they're either at or near the end of their tightening cycles? Yes, you're right. The data released over the past couple of weeks on inflation has not been particularly encouraging for for central banks. Now, headline inflation fell in the eurozone, but core inflation edged up. And then in the past, we've had the news from the US that core inflation again another 0.4% month-on-month increase in April. So food and energy shocks across developed economies appear to be easing. Inflation there is coming down, but core inflation is proving to be extremely sticky. And in the US, actually, it's interesting that we've had core goods inflation having eased substantially over the past uh, couple of quarters, but then it edged up again last month, driven in part by a big increase in, in used vehicle prices. I think most troubling for policymakers, though, is what's happening in the services sector. Core services inflation, there's no signs really that that's starting to ease at the moment. And we know that policymakers are putting quite a lot of emphasis on uh, services inflation because that's where you're most likely to see, I think, the the pass-through from wage growth into into domestic uh, services inflation. So troubling picture for central banks still. Now, the Fed has signaled that it's probably done with tightening. The Bank of England was more equivocal when it met in the past week. Our sense is that it's probably at the end of its tightening cycle, but we wouldn't rule out another hike or two. The ECB thinks it has more work to do. We've got rates there going to three and three quarter percent at a peak for the end of this year. So central banks, certainly in Europe, with a bit more work to do, I think. In the US, the key is going to be the labor market. The jolts data, the job openings data, appear to be pointing to a slowdown in wage growth. The Atlanta Fed wage tracker is starting to come down. I think the Fed's going to be paying very, very close attention to how those data evolve over the coming months. The last of these big themes that came out of our meetings that I wanted to put to you was, was about the future of the dollar, including this idea of a BRICS currency that's been doing the rounds for a while. This idea that that Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa could challenge US dollar dominance with a common currency plan. Seems to be serious enough that it's on the agenda for the BRICS meeting in Johannesburg in late summer. I know you've talked and written extensively about why talk of the dollar's demise is greatly exaggerated. Is a BRICS currency just more of this sort of wishful thinking on the part of adversaries of the US dollar? Well, I think it's all very well and good talking about BRICS currency, it's far more difficult to actually do something about it, particularly on a scale that's going to rival the the dollar's role in the global financial system. For all the reasons that we've set out in, in previous research and that indeed we've talked about on this, this podcast, when it comes to a BRICS currency itself, it's unclear actually what the various leaders of the BRICS economies are actually talking about, indeed whether they're talking about the same thing when they 
They talk about BRICS currencies. I think more fundamentally, when you think about the role of the dollar and whether the renminbi, a Bitcoin, or any other currency for that matter might challenge it in the global financial system, a lot of focus tends to fall on the role of the dollar as a reserve currency, countries holding dollars in reserve, in their, in their central bank reserves. I think actually that misunderstands why the dollar is so important. It's not about the use of dollars in reserves. It's about the use of dollars in cross-border transactions. And if you look at data from the BIS over the past three decades or so, the share of cross-border transactions denominated in dollars has not shifted. It's remained extremely high. And the reason for that fundamentally is lack of credible alternatives and these huge network effects that build up around the dollar as a result of its dominance in in cross-border transactions. So roll the clock forward. I suspect there may be potentially a Bitcoin that might get used more in in cross-border transactions. The share of these currencies being used in cross-border transactions will increase, I suspect, over the, the coming years, but it's not going to increase on the scale that's likely to threaten the dollar. That was Neil Shearing on the idea of a BRICS currency. Uh, Mark Williams will be revisiting our 2018 China view in a new report in the coming week or two, so watch out for that. Also, Turkey's holding a make-or-break presidential election this Sunday. That's 14th of May. If you didn't catch our last podcast episode on the economic risks around that vote, you can find it on our dedicated Turkey election coverage page. And I'll link to that in the show notes of this podcast. Now, depending on the reports you read, either progress is being made on reaching an agreement between the White House and congressional leaders to raise the US debt ceiling, or both sides remain far apart and a US default is a real risk. To understand what's happening and what it means for markets, I spoke earlier Friday to Deputy Chief US Economist Andrew Hunter and to Jonas Goldsman, who's our Deputy Chief Markets Economist. I started by asking Andrew why the issue has flared up again and what the most likely outcome is this time. Ever since the midterms last year when the Republicans won control of the House, I think it seemed pretty likely that with the debt ceiling there was going to need to be some kind of bipartisan negotiated solution to raise the debt ceiling, most likely involving some kind of modest cuts to government spending. I think that's still the most likely outcome. We know that negotiations are ongoing between President Joe Biden and congressional leaders. But I think there's there's uncertainty, first of all, about whether or not they will be able to come to an agreement, how quickly those negotiations will progress, but also over when exactly the, the deadline to raise the debt ceiling is. So we know from Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, that the Treasury's best guess right now is that the, the so-called X date is, is likely to fall at some point in early June, potentially as soon as the first of that month. It's you know That's going to depend in part on things like the strength of quarterly corporate tax receipts, which will start flowing in from early June. But I guess the, the key point for now is that it seems likely that you know the negotiations are probably going to go down to the wire and i guess the closer that we get to the the potential deadline just the higher the the risks really either of a you know a last minute breakdown in negotiations or simply a, a miscalculation an accident if you like over the the exact timing of the the deadline do we do we think that the the risks during this current saga are greater than they were during previous flare-ups over the debt ceiling in 2011 and, and 2013? I wouldn't necess- necessarily say the risks are higher now than in, in 2011, 2013, but I guess it, it perhaps just highlights that you know this is 
I think there is a sense that this is the first time since then that people are, you know, starting to believe that there is a, a genuine chance, albeit a small chance, that there could be some kind of, you know, at least temporary government default. And I think that just highlights the the fundamental issue that this is really the first time in, you know, basically a decade that we've had the situation of a Democrat in charge of the White House, but the Republicans having control or at least part control of Congress. Of course, we did have you know similar situations during the the Trump presidency when the the Democrats of course controlled the House for the the latter half of of his term. But I think you know with the Democrats, their sort of conditions for agreeing to raise the debt ceiling was essentially pushing for higher government spending. And I think generally speaking, that's a lot more politically palatable for everyone. Whereas now, obviously, the, the Republicans ultimately want big cuts across the board. And that's unsurprisingly proving a lot more difficult. If a deal can't be done, what about these these workaround ideas that are being batted around? There's talk about Treasury issuing perpetual bonds or, or raising the coupon on, on Treasuries. There's also, of course, this, this long-standing idea about issuing a trillion-dollar coin. Is this all just pie-in-the-sky thinking, or is there anything to them? I think our general sense, I guess, would probably be to to almost reiterate what, you know, Janet Yellen and, and Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, have been stressing that, you know, there isn't any kind of permanent costless workaround. Ultimately, the debt ceiling is going to have to be raised. There's a number of different sort of alternative solutions people have talked about, so First of all, you know, in the in the event that the the deadline is reached, there's this idea that the Treasury might be able to essentially prioritize debt repayments over other spending, thereby, you know, avoiding the, the risk of a, a technical default on US government debt. That's certainly a possibility, but it's likely to be very difficult. And I, I think, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, it's definitely not a solution and arguably would just be a default by by another name. Other people have suggested that the the president could essentially just ignore the debt ceiling, perhaps declare it unconstitutional. People would talk about the 14th Amendment, which amongst other things states that essentially the US government has to repay its debts. That, though, I think would definitely be subject to a lot of legal uncertainty, immediate legal legal challenges from the, the Republicans, I think. So again, not a permanent solution to, to the crisis. Perhaps the most interesting idea which repeatedly pops up when, when we get these debt ceiling episodes is the idea that the, the Treasury could use what's a, a fairly arcane legal authority it has to mint large denomination coins so that this idea of a, a platinum coin is that the Treasury could essentially create a coin, declare it its value to be, say, a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars more. It would then deposit the coin at the Fed. The Fed then credits the Treasury's account with those funds and, and the Treasury can use those funds to, you know, fund its its spending and, and debt obligations. I think a few points to stress though are first of all that, you know, it definitely wouldn't be the kind of costless solution that some people seem to suggest. At the end of the day, it it would ultimately involve the, the Treasury essentially assuming control of the money supply. It would have pretty serious implications for the Fed's independence, I think. 
But the broader point is that it could potentially risk opening Pandora's box in that, you know, if the, the president and, and the treasury decide to mint a platinum coin to, to avoid a debt ceiling default, who's to say in the future that, you know, a, a democratic president, whether it's Joe Biden or someone else might decide to, to mint a platinum coin to fund spending on climate change or perhaps a future Republican administration using a platinum coin to, to fund tax cuts. I think, you know, given the, the potentially very serious implications in the long term for inflation, the, the long term value of the US, US dollar, I think there's definitely an argument that going down the road of, of minting a, a platinum coin could potentially be at least as damaging in the long run as a, a temporary temporary default. Thank you, Andrew. Jonas, I'd like to bring you in now to talk about market implications. The headlines this past week have suggested we're on the brink of something like Armageddon. But markets, and, and leaving aside the CDS market, which we'll come to, markets have barely budged. What explains this disconnect? Yeah, I think you're right. This has become quite dramatic now, at least in the headlines. But I think the reality is a bit less crazy than that. I mean, I think that the way to think about it is markets have two broad sets of issues to worry about here. One is what I would describe as a technical one. You know, what happens if there are a day or a few days or a few weeks even of missed payments on, on US debt? How will that feed through mechanically in money markets, affecting cash management systems, collateral and financial markets and so on? And how do you, do you, do you manage and, and try to preempt that risk as best possible? And the second issue is, well, there is a risk that the debt ceiling, if it goes on for for more than a week or two, it, that it sets off a wider downturn in sentiment that affects the macroeconomy, perhaps triggering a recession, something investors are worried about anyway already. And sort of how does that all that sort of broader macro story play out? Now, I think the focus, to the extent that you see an impacted market, it's mainly around that first point, the micro issues, the way you're seeing a clear impact. You can see that in the market for short-term US debt, one month, three month T-bills yields are considerably higher than they, they ought to be based on where other short term interest rates are. You could see very clearly earlier this month when the one month yield jumped as it moved into that, that probable window around the X state. So it's sort of less than a one month out now. So therefore, the one month yield has you know, starts to reflect that, that risk as well. You've seen it maybe in the share prices of some companies that rely a lot on, on government for the revenues of defense contractors and the like. They've underperformed the broader market recently. That probably is in part due to worries about how their bottom line will, will be affected by all this. But I don't think there's that much sign that the broader equity or bond market in the US or elsewhere is particularly worried about the debt ceiling affecting the macro outlook. You know, equity markets have continued to hold up quite well. Bond markets also, you know, we're, we're sort of in this in this range really where it's all still about, you know, what's the macro data doing? What's the Fed telling us? How are corporate earnings holding up? You know, you have the additional issue of the, the US regional banks and so on. But I don't really get the sense that that, that ceiling is, is driving too much of that. So I would say overall, it's, it's more of a micro concern so far than a macro one. That could certainly change in the coming weeks as we get, you know, even closer to this X date. There was also, to some extent, the experience in 2011, 2013, the debt ceiling didn't really affect things too much until until it really got right down to the wire. And I would I would think it probably plays out similarly this time around. You know, after all, the, the main takeaway from from 2011 and 2013 is that, you know, this was a war storm in the teacup. We, you know, they did get it, it all resolved in the end. 
What about the credit default swap market? One year CDS premium have been a focal point for those saying that we are heading for a default. Is that really the case? What is going on with the cost of insuring against a US default and why has it risen so much? Yeah, the CDS thing is interesting, but I feel like it's a bit the outlier here. Now, as you say, the premium on insuring US debt is considerably higher now than it was in 2011 or 2013, which you could certainly take as a sign that, well, the likelihood of a, of a bad outcome is also higher now. I think there's a, a, at least three three points to make around that. The first is simply that, well, the CDS market for, for US sovereign debt is is really very small. According to some recent research that the Fed put out, you know, it's in the order of 10 to 15 billion. Maybe it's a bit more now since they put that paper out. But that's still tiny if you compare it to the underlying treasury market, which is you know in the tens of trillions. So in some sense, this is the case of the tail wagging the dog. The second point is that you know, even at the current price, we're almost at 200 basis points now, I think, or two cents per dollar of face value insured in terms of the US CDS threat. That's still far lower than what you see in, in countries that actually have gone through to defaults on their debt and whether, you know, there's been a, a, a true sovereign default. Think about Argentina or Zambia or what have you. And the third point, maybe the most important one, is that CDS are not a direct measure of default probability. The CDS price reflects both the probability of default, but also the payout in the event of default. So in the case of corporate bonds or, or EM sovereigns, the payout depends on how much bondholders can recover in bankruptcy or debt restructuring. And the price, the, the CDS payout is determined by the sort of an auction of the affected bonds. And so the CDS holder gets the face value typically 100, less the recovery value. But for the US, the default wouldn't, would in some sense not be a real one, at least that's what we all believe, right? It, it's just a technical issue where, you know, the US is perfectly capable of paying its debts. And one way or another, I think common assumption is that payments would eventually resume, even if the Treasury missed a few payments and that triggered an event of default under the CDS contracts. So the settlement price in the CDS auction for US debt would probably depend mainly on the current market value of US Treasuries. And what's different now from 2011 or 2013 is that a lot of treasury bonds are trading well below face value because they were issued when coupons, where interest rates were lower and therefore coupons on the debt were, were much smaller. And so as interest rates have gone up over the past couple of years, the, the market value of, of treasuries that are trading well below face value, well below par. So they are, And that's nothing to do with sort of a, a risk of default. It's simply that's the correct price for those cash flows at current interest rates. So the thinking is up the, now that you know, if there was a CDS auction, the settlement price, the recovery value would be based on, on very long dated treasury bonds. Those trading in the sort of 60, 70 cents on the dollar range. So the CDS payout could be something like 30 or 40 cents on the dollar, which is quite a substantial payout for something you've just paid you know, two cents for. So the implied probability of default here is, is actually quite low still, even if it looks high, then it's probably not materially different from, from the implied probability of the fault back in 2011 or 2013. So again, this is more of a technical wrinkle, quite an interesting one, I think, personally, but I wouldn't take it necessarily as a sign of impending doom. It's, it's certainly not a good sign, but it's probably not as dramatic as it's been made out to be.
So I yeah. So you look at the chart and you think, oh my god, the cost of insurance is so high. The U.S. is bound to default. More to do with the mechanics of what happens for so the settlement of contracts in the event of of a credit event. So something of a misleading indicator. You mentioned 2011, 2013 flare-ups over this debt ceiling. Is there anything that we can take from the market reaction then that, that we can apply now? Well, so this is something we've looked at closely and imagine that many others have been as well. My takeaway is that it's hard to draw very strong conclusions because we only have a handful of examples, 2011, 2013, the main ones. You could look at periods in 2015 or 17 when the debt ceiling was getting close to binding, even though we never got as close to the X state on those occasions. Generally, equities didn't do very well around these episodes, especially in 2011. The S&P 500 fell sharply after the US credit rating was downgraded, even though that was actually, I believe, after the debt ceiling had been raised. Treasury yields fell, as you would expect in that situation, and, and the dollar actually didn't move too much in either direction. I feel like that's down, there's a sort of offsetting factors there where risk sentiment worsening tends to support the dollar, but interest rate differential moved against the US at that time. But if you take a step back, though, 2011 was dominated by the Eurozone crisis, which was a big negative for, for equities, and it pushed bond yields down pretty much everywhere. 2013, the debt ceiling drama then, it coincided with the taper tantrum, which pushed US yields much higher, and it boosted the dollar. I think it's hard to really disentangle the debt ceiling issue or the debt ceiling effect, if you will, from those broader trends. Certainly, the Eurozone crisis and the taper tantrum, they had a much bigger, more lasting effect than the debt ceiling did. So overall, I think the takeaways is, you know, as we get closer to the X state, you know, maybe we see a similar sort of risk-off environment, be bad for equities, be good for bonds probably for the dollar as well. I'm not sure about that one. It's a bit paradoxical given that this is a US-driven problem that somehow drives up the price of, of US bonds. But at the end of the day, unless Congress really you know, makes this a much bigger mess than what we've seen in the past, I, I feel like this whole episode is going to turn out to be a footnote when we look back at how markets fared in, in 2023. That was Jonas Goldman and Andrew Hunter on this latest tussle over the US debt ceiling. They'll be briefing clients online on Monday 15th of May, along with Paul Ashworth, our chief US economist, so watch out for that. But that's it for this episode. You can find all our coverage, including about the debt ceiling saga, on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for complete access, including powerful data and charting tools, check out CE Advance. That's our new premium platform. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.